Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Culture File Weekly in which we ask, among other questions, are there witches among us? Or at least, were there witches in post-war Germany? We'll have Rob Long's latest martini shot later on, but we're going to spend most of our time this episode in the company of historian Monica Black. What looked like a bizarre epidemic of cases of paralysis in West Germany after the war inspired her latest body of research. Deep in the archives, Black had noticed that along with this mega-cluster of mysterious ailments came a wave of wonder workers ready to conjure miracle cures and offer consolation to a defeated people. In her latest book, A Demon-Haunted Land, she traces the rise and fall of superstar faith healers witchbusters, bomb diviners, and indeed those who sought to tackle the parade of what she calls the witches, wonder doctors, and ghosts of the past that floated above the rubble of a defeated nation. What I think you're you're talking about is the way that an official reckoning with uh, denazification and with the after effects of of the Second World War weren't as clear and thorough as we might have expected, but that gave rise to a lot of very unofficial and very occult in the in the kind of technical uh, version of it occult ways of dealing with the legacy of the Third Reich and the Second World War. Denazification is often thought of as having been, frankly, a kind of failure in Germany, that um, instead of the country being as denazified as the Allies originally imagined it might be, removing from all positions of authority people who had been important members of the Nazi party, that simply was not possible after in the immediate aftermath of the war, because a lot of those people had also been very well connected in governmental circles, for example. But in other ways, I think, denazification took on these unofficial forms of denazification or unofficial forms of reckoning, I would say, with the past, where feelings of anxiety about one's recent experiences, one's recent acts, the things that one had done during the Third Reich might be revealed uh, those kinds of fears drove a lot of the phenomena that I describe in the book. There were certain forms of illness that seemed to afflict a lot of people after the Second World War that very well may have had their roots in the forms of shame and feelings of failure and even guilt that a lot of people experienced after the Second World War. One of the things you point out is that if people were feeling that something terrible had happened, they actually quite often um, characterise that as the, uh, that was the defeat and the occupation, that, that, that these were the things that were troubling people, you know, kind of in a day-to-day basis, but also psychically and in, in some kind of hidden way. Right. Our assumption when we think about guilt, for example, after the Second World War, our minds immediately go to the crimes of the Third Reich and to the Holocaust. I don't think that most Germans, at least I think historians would, most historians would agree with me that most Germans did not feel guilt about those crimes in the immediate aftermath of the war. They were much more focused on themselves and what had happened to them. The way that their feelings of failure and also, to be quite honest, the horror of being occupied by people who had only very recently been your enemies, those experiences had a, a tremendous emotional impact on a lot of Germans and they and those 
emotions express themselves in some of the strange phenomena that I wrote about in my book. What you unearth is this kind of cast of characters and and some are uh, folk doctors or healers and some seem to be slightly visionary people. But I, I was interested in a minor character who shows up and he kind of straddles uh, comes out of the Second World War and, and, and persists a little bit. The bomb diviner, Alois Ilmar. Ilmar was a, um, a man who was kind of a rural figure in Bavaria who gained a lot of fame, at least locally. I, I don't mean in, in some bigger sense, but at least gained local fame because of his ability to divine the fates of people in the afterlife, for example. So he was someone who could tell you whether your loved one who was missing in the war had died, and he could tell people where bombs were going to fall, or at least he was revered for this ability to know where bombs were going to fall. How good was he at that? Well, according to the people who, according to the people who were his fans, if you will, he was quite adept. I mean, he was a person who had real skills. But it was a busy time. I mean, he was far from the only person in in the divining and vision business. And, and he, he's not really the centre of activity. And I, I guess the centre of activity is Bruno Groening. Bruno Groening was a figure who sort of appeared out of nowhere, it seemed, in 1949. There was some, apparently some rumours about him, about his ability to cure the sick. And so a family in a, in a Westphalian town called Hereford uh, called for him to come. They, they knew someone who knew about him or could get in touch with him somehow. And so Groening came to Hereford to meet with this family whose young son had been in bed for weeks and weeks, unable to get up or walk around anymore. He had a kind of degenerative muscular disorder. But they called him to their house, and within just a little while of the young boy meeting Bruno Groening, the story goes, uh, the young boy was up walking around and his parents were amazed and thrilled and delighted. And they asked Bruno Groening to come and live with them. And within a very short time, thousands of people were descending on this small city, um, small town, really, um, trying to get an audience with Groening. And one of the things that struck me when I started researching him as a figure was I remember sitting in the in the archives actually and I remember writing down I still have my notes from the first time first time I visited the archive I wrote down why do so many people who are contacting him seem to be suffering from some form of paralysis and it would be all sorts of things people would say my my left foot is paralyzed both of my feet are paralyzed since 1944 since 1945 I've lost all use of my right hand since 1946 I haven't been able to walk anymore um, and I was really struck by how often that was the case. And so I started trying to understand what the meaning of that illness might be beyond whatever its, mm, let's say, physical or biological meaning might be. To what extent was there a lack of medical services that were driving people to, to faith healers? There wouldn't have been very many people left to go to hospitals or traditional practitioners at all. So I don't discount that at all, what you're saying. I think it I think it's quite possible that uh, sort of sheer lack of physicians in some cases may have driven people to, to other healers. But I would also say there is a tradition in Germany of people going to lay healers. And in fact, until, until 1936, a most anyone uh, who wished to do so could 
apply medicine as a trade. Um, that was that was perfectly legitimate thing to do. And I would also add that after the revelations of the Nuremberg doctors' trial, medicine was also compromised not just by say the the lack of practitioners, the lack of physicians, but also by the view that many people had that doctors had been engaged in 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 horrible experiments and they had helped the state carry out mass um um sterilizations and uh i mean the 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 medical profession itself suffered from a very serious if you will not to be flipped but pr problem after the second world war so there's a whole host of different motivations i would say um, for people to to seek out a healer who was not a doctor. He had this uh, astounding uh, rise, so that whenever he went to a town, he would be mobbed. There were there were mass rallies of some sort with um, cleaved lights. You point out that the whole thing uh, kind of would have echoed Nuremberg for people, and so there there was some sort of official. Uh, fear that, uh, that this was a, a, another Hitler arising. Yes, there were people, certainly. I don't want to give the impression, it's very important that you point it out, I don't want to give the impression that everyone in this society embraced Bruno Groening, because that's certainly not the case. Many people did not embrace Bruno Groening. Uh, lots of people in the medical profession didn't like the kinds of things he was saying. Um, and... There was certainly opprobrium from state governments, you know, while some state governments were at least initially very receptive to him, others were definitely not. So there's a there's a, also a wide spe spectrum of views about him. But one of the things certainly that some people pointed out, a number of people actually pointed out, was how eerie it was in a way to see this man standing on a balcony you know, because he would have these enormous gatherings where thousands and thousands of people would show up. And he liked to, it seems to me, and I, th I think the sources bear this out, he liked to cultivate a certain kind of mystery around himself, which he seems to have thought was conducive to the healing process. And so he would stand on a balcony looking down on a group of people below in the dark and at a certain point as i described a documentary was being shot about him and so there would be big spotlights illuminating him in the darkness and all of that has a certain kind of um resonance and certainly would have had a certain kind of resonance uh, it would have formed a certain memory in people's minds or reminded them of something from the past and that thing from the past was was you know, Hitler standing on a balcony and talking. Kauf dir einen bunten Luftballon, nimm ihn fest in deine Hand. Stell dir vor, er fliegt mit dir davon in ein fernes Märchenland. Kauf dir einen bunten Luftballon, hellblau, lila. Yeah, so what I'm what I'm about to read is um, just a, a little a little piece of of my explanation for why we see an eruption of of witchcraft accusations after the Second World War in what became West Germany. The most commonplace image used to evoke post-war Germany is the rubble that littered the cities. But there was a kind of rubble plaguing the smaller towns and the countryside too, the rubble of social relations. 
It could not be measured in cubic tons, but maybe it was heavier, because it could not be picked up and carted away. The unprocessed past, not just the Nazi past, but also the period of denazification, left behind a climate of bitterness and insecurity in places where witchcraft was an available logic of social relations, a way of working out who was whose ally in a shifting landscape of loyalties. Another figure who sort of strides around and was born the same year as Gronig is Valdemar Eberling, who, if uh, Gronig saw himself kind of as being sent from God to, to um, reveal the power of good, dealt more with evil and people who'd been afflicted with evil by the devil, maybe. Yes, absolutely by the devil. So I would say there's actually much less daylight between these two guys than you might think. Both of them thought that they had a gift which was divine in origin that that enabled them that gave them the ability to identify evil in other people that he had a kind of sense sometimes that someone in the neighborhood was perhaps getting up to no good and he would never say this explicitly he would never say oh, listen, that person who lives across the street is a witch. He never said anything like that. But he would say to people, oh, there's an awful lot of illness in your family lately. Oh, and that tree fell on your house. Oh, and your crops have failed this year. And right, he would run through a list of, of, of misfortunes that a particular family perhaps had faced. And he would say, what can be behind all of this? It could be witchcraft. And in a community for whom that makes sense... It was a perfectly ordinary thing to tell someone. In a small face-to-face community, in a rural setting, people know each other very well. And they knew, for example, who had illegitimately obtained property. And they knew that they had gone unpunished. Or they feared if they, for example, had illegally gotten their hands on property that wasn't due to them, they feared that one of their neighbors who knew about it might decide to inform someone about that fact. And this created a churn of mistrust and sort of misgivings of people among one another. And in communities where witchcraft was a kind of viable idea about, let's just say, how social relations work, that was a situation that was fairly ripe for accusations to fester, because no one really knows who is whose ally in a moment like that. It's such a complicated picture because one of the other things that you point out is this, that quite often witchcraft and Jewish people were conflated and therefore anti-witching became associated with anti, uh, anti-Semitism. Right. I mean, one of the main figures in my book is a man named Johann Kruse, who's actually the person who got me started on writing this book in the first place because I found a reference to a book that he had written in the early 1950s about witchcraft in post-war Germany. And I thought, well, what? that can't be what it sounds like, but it was. Essentially, in English, the title would be Are There Witches Among Us? And so I found this a reference to this book, and I thought, what in the world is this? And I started reading it, and I realized it was, in fact, about you know witchcraft beliefs in post-war Germany, and that, that's what actually got me started on this entire um, project. But 
Cruza, one of the he was a very interesting guy who was he was a social democrat. He was a you know very much a, a man who would have thought of himself as a figure of the Enlightenment. You know, um, uh, a science minded person and uh, a, a vigorous campaigner throughout his life against witchcraft beliefs. I mean, he was a real activist. One of the reasons that witchcraft beliefs alarmed him so much was because they seemed to echo earlier forms of scapegoating, such as anti-Semitic scapegoating. By about 1961, the cases have simply dried up, really by the late 50s, actually. Um, one official says, we've been investigating and we just can't find any more cases. We, he says, we don't know ourselves what happened. And my sort of answer to this is that, you know, over time, as material conditions improved, as um, the kinds of misfortunes that are likely to give rise to witchcraft accusations dried up, as people became less concerned, let's say, less anxious about what their neighbors might say about them, that things calmed down again and the accusations sort of faded away. These people, whether they be lay doctors or faith healers or good witches or whatever, were they on the whole quite useful for Germany? You know, in, in some countries, like I'm, I'm thinking of South Africa and, and also what's proposed for, for Northern Ireland, that, you know, you have a tribunal of truth and reconciliation which sort of turns it forensic and, uh, you know, assumes that voicing specifically in, in a sort of manner acceptable to a court is the most useful way of doing things. And I, I wonder if the things that you're talking about are more poetic and literary ways of, of performing the same function. I think your, your way of framing that is right. The sort of forensic approach means that the things that one has done either fit some definition of a crime or they don't. People can have done all kinds of awful things that don't fit the definition of a crime, let's say. These phenomena that I describe in the book provided some kind of release valve. Um, even when people, if people are given carte blanche to tell the terrible things that they did and not have to suffer any consequences from it, that also seems to leave something out, <laughs> to, you know, neglect, to, to, to punish people for the things that they did. And so there's a way in which maybe some of these phenomena helped in a spiritual sense to, to play that kind of role, to serve that kind of purpose. This has a kind of almost contemporary resonance in that you've just ended in the United States a regime that, you know, ended in an insurrection and uh, an incomplete insurrection and, and an incomplete reckoning. So I wonder how that makes its way out into the psyche of the country if it's not through a legal through legal processes. Yeah, I really wish I could answer that because I think I could... <laughs> <laughs> Is wrestling fixed? <laughs> oh, I think I, I would become instantly a very influential person if I could if I could get my hands around that that idea. But I I, I don't you know I, I think so. In the United States, we are dealing. We, it's true that we are dealing with something that seems to be um, similar in the sense that I would say it like this: we are dealing with massive social mistrust, and to the extent that meaning has become extremely hard to put one's finger on. I mean, there are those of us who saw a very clear and violent insurrection. And then there are citizens of this country who saw patriotic 
protest. It, 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 these are unfathomable things to put together in the same frame. They don't go together. So I think that what we're experiencing in the United States is a situation in which some people have decided to adopt a completely alternative view of the world, and they I don't know what will bring them back from that. And I think that that sows mistrust. It, it, it's almost as if there are two camps of reality. I would say one of, one of those camps is not in reality at all, but they have their own reality, apparently. And so, um, you know, that, 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 is a, that is creating a kind of very serious social problem in the United States. One of the things that I think is really strange about the United States as a culture is that we ascribe everything to individual motivations. So we always want to be told, you know, why did that person go and shoot a bunch of people in a grocery store? That individual's sort of psychology is always brought to bear to explain it. And I often think that we might do a lot better if we saw, for example, the QAnon phenomenon as a social phenomenon, because it is one. If people believe in conspiracy theories, and their conspiracy theory holds that some portion of the population are abusing children in some horrific way, that is a social problem. It's not just a problem of uh, you know, individual psychology, that is to say, the problem of the person who believes the conspiracy theory, it's a problem that a group of people in society believe that another group of in society are evil. So I do see many parallels between, and I certainly saw them in the latter part when I was finishing up my book, in the last years of the Trump regime, I, um, I certainly saw parallels. Um, I think they're obviously extremely different situations. And yet, this theme of mistrust, um, of social malaise, um, is kind of runs through both stories. Monica Black there, author of A Demon-Haunted Land, Witches, Wonder Doctors and the Ghosts of the Past in Post-World War II Germany. And that only leaves us with time for our weekly check-in with the storytelling industrial complex, where Rob Long has been thinking about the intricacies of finding the love and the money in a business where the two have a special relationship and where the money isn't all about the money, even when it is. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. Not too long ago, I worked on a project with a friend of mine. We wrote a script together that, despite being the very best script ever written, with one or two exceptions, didn't, as the current euphemism sweeping the business says, move forward. It didn't move forward, which was a disappointment, of course, but the sting of it somewhat lessened by the fact that no one called either one of us with that news. One moment we were getting called every day or so with script notes from the studio and script notes from the network or studio script notes on the studio revised network draft or notes on the network revised draft from the network, notes from the studio on the draft based on the revised network draft, second draft notes, and then suddenly, suddenly, no notes at all. Which at first is a relief, but then it's kind of depressing because we writers spend all of our time complaining about script notes, but then when they stop, we get all hurt and sulky. But a few weeks later, my pal and I were having lunch, and he asked me a rather personal question. Hey, he said, have we been paid for the script, I asked? Yeah, he said. I mean, I think we've been paid in full, but I'm not sure. Now, I know that sounds funny, unless you're a screenwriter, because in our business, payment is broken into a zillion little pieces. You get something for the outline, or the outline notes, and the first draft, and then the second draft, and the approved draft, and you get something for the polish, you know, things like that. And then they always hold something back, something 
fairly substantial, actually, enough for a mortgage payment, say, or a decent used car, until they get the final signatures on a raft of useless legal and contractual documents. So the first few checks are easy to monitor. They've either paid you for the first draft and the outline, or they haven't. But the last couple, including payment for something called with unsettling creepiness, a certificate of authorship, well, they hold those back just small enough so that in a writer's 3 a.m. mental arithmetic, he or she might think, um, yeah, I I think I got it all. Let's see, some to my attorney, some to my agent, some to my accountant. Yeah, I think that's everything. But it's not everything. There's a bunch of it left back at the studio, back in the account they call the writers are bad at math account. And what they're hoping for, or at least what it seems like they're hoping for, is that it's small enough to be forgotten and overlooked at least for a while. And if you add up all of the scripts they're paying for and all the writers that are bad at math, you end up with a pretty large pile of sofa change. And look, this really isn't just about money, which of course is a grubby and downscale topic we're supposed to avoid. But money in Hollywood has an emotional heft to it. When I first came to Hollywood to be a writer, and it's really none of your business when exactly that was, what I discovered was that every other writer I met seemed to be working on something, seemed to have some angle, some in with someone important. Everyone I met seemed to be one or two steps away from greatness. His assistant is a good friend of mine, they'd say, or I walked her dog, she's cool, or my friend knows the new person who handles their development. And really, this isn't so bad. This is often the way things get done, the way projects, to use that term, move forward. But there is also another kind of relationship that writers get sucked into when they're young and desperate, or, you know, old and desperate. They often find themselves talking to one of these zillions of production companies, Is it clear that I'm using air quotes when I say production companies that are all over the place? Go to any dentist or dermatologist's office in Beverly Hills and walk along the hallways, and there are always mysterious office doors, dusty and untouched, with names on them like Sedona Productions or All Seasons Media or Valley View Pictures, and it's never really clear what's going on inside there. How do you know you're really in business, a wise old writer once told me, when someone calls for your tax ID number? Because that means that someone is about to write a check and is preparing the relevant income tax documents, and anything less than that, anything less, means it's not real. Even a promise, even a handshake, maybe especially a promise and a handshake. Unless they want your tax ID number, you are not getting paid. Why is it always about money with you writers, a studio executive once asked me after I finished talking for several minutes about money? Because money means you're serious. Look, if you're a writer, you just spent months, maybe years writing something. You are already serious. But when someone starts giving you money, that means they're serious too, which means that now there are two people on the serious team. And that's a lot less lonely. So money to a writer means companionship. It means company. When they give you money for something you've written, or if you're really lucky, something you've just promised to write, the world is a lot less lonely, and the solitary job of writing is suddenly not so solitary. It's more social, which is why when they call and ask, what's your tax ID number, it's hard not to get, you know, emotional. Although when the studio still owes you money, you can get pretty emotional about that too. 
and it turned out that my friend and I hadn't actually been paid everything. We had signed our certificate of authorship and had received the usual five separate checks for the five specific phases of the project, but unbeknownst to us, this particular studio had decided to add another segment in there without telling anyone. They were waiting for us to Xerox the photo page of our passports to prove that we were U.S. citizens, which we then did, and six to eight weeks later, of course, the final checks dribbled in, So the next time I have a project at that studio, when I turn my script in, I'm going to hold the third act of the script back. I mean, if they can take the float on my stuff, I can take the float on theirs. And if they want it to move forward, there's only one way to show that they're serious. And that's it for this week. Next week, I promise I'll become a non-fungible token as soon as I learn what a non-fungible token is. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. Thanks, as always, for listening. And join us again next week in the Daily Culture File, Monday to Friday, in Classic Drive here on RTE Lyric FM, and Saturday Tea Time for the Culture File Weekly. Till then, bye now.